0: Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will.
1: We've seen the whole agricultural community come out.
0: Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't
1: worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing
0: businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers, farmers
1: today. The
2: exactly-
0: Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio.
2: Hello, hello. I'm Hannah Joes with you from Dubbo on Countrywide Today. Over the next half an hour, we're going to look at Australia's troubles relating to Indonesia and livestock. You'll have heard some of that in the news over the last few weeks with, of course, the foot and mouth outbreak there. And more recently, with the delayed compensation from the live export class action. We're also going to look at the Grain for Ukraine appeal and how Aussie farmers are showing their support. And a bit later on, we'll talk luxury bulls. Yes, that's right, bulls. So stay listening if you want to find out more about that on Countrywide. Taxpayers are facing a massive $2 billion payout as a result of class action against the live export trade ban to Indonesia back in 2011. A little less than half that bill is just in accrued interest, and that's going up by over a $1 million a week at the moment as the amount goes unpaid. The federal court ruled in favour of the cattle industry on the issue more than two years ago when the trade of live cattle to Indonesia was banned over animal cruelty concerns. But only one claimant has received that compensation so far. Matt Brand spoke to the CEO of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, Will Evans, about a letter that has been sent to members of the class action providing an update.
3: Claimants to the class action would have received a letter from our League of Representatives last week. And what that that letter says is that we're still in the very early stages of of determining a a total quantum for damages, and we're a fair way off being able to actually resolve this and and, and see people paid out for compensation.
4: Anything else in the letter that you're able to share with us?
3: Look, I I think where we're up to probably is an indication of the fact that we need to see a bigger allocation of resources towards the government to get this done and a commitment to the government to getting this done. These guys, I mean, we've obviously got people who've been waiting you know, 12 years, like you said, since the, the Act was committed. And this is now a moral obligation on government to get this finished, to get this finalised. We, we, we two years after a court case that determined that the action was that was undertaken was illegal and we're still waiting on calculating how much damage was actually inflicted. And that's that's too long. I think everybody would appreciate that.
4: And it's not just the cattle industry. Am I right that it's costing taxpayers something like a million dollars a week in interest?
3: It's, it's a huge amount of interest, Matt, and I, I think that number will continue to increase the longer that this takes. And I understand that there are a number of processes that the government needs to go through, but I think they need to be go, going through them a lot faster like i said this is this is a moral obligation now this is an action that was deemed illegal by the courts that damaged people that government was there to represent and now it's time that we finalize this so that everybody can move on
4: in terms of a total sum the last number i saw was two billion dollars is that still about right
3: i think that's right matt and i think it's going to continue to increase like you've said the interest bill just keeps getting higher so really, what we're looking for is a quick, prompt resolution to this, and a commitment from the government that there will be resources in this budget to assist in that, and, and to assist in seeing this finalised.
4: Have you been given any timeframes?
3: No, Matt. I, I don't think anybody's got a, a, an honest time frame at the moment. It's um, it's really looking very difficult for us at the minute. Okay,
4: so all eyes on uh, the budget next month. Yes. Yeah.
3: That's make- that's where we're hoping.
2: That's Will Evans, CEO of the NT Cattlemen's Association. Now, speaking of cattle and Indonesia, there is another problem that we've mentioned before, and that is the outbreak of foot and mouth disease in the Southeast Asian country that has Aussie livestock producers jittery, to say the least. If FMD were to arrive on Australian shores, it would mean an immediate halt to beef exports. That's because so many of Australia's trade relationships are dependent on our FMD-free status. That could cost the economy $80 $80 billion over 10 years, according to the Department of Agriculture. So there's lots at stake. Indonesia says Bali is FMD-free, with no new outbreaks detected in two months. But the ABC has found signs of FMD still very visible in Indonesian cattle. Here's Indonesia correspondent Ann Barker taking us through that now.
5: In Bali's northwest Jembrana region, cattle are foaming at the mouth... It's a classic sign of foot and mouth disease. But for Kutut Danio and farmers like him, euthanasia or treatment by a vet is too expensive.
3: The vet just took a look at one cow and gave it an injection because we had to pay for it ourselves. So only my brother did it for his one cow.
5: Across the road, half of this herd also shows signs of the disease, drooling from the mouth, poor appetite and some with sore feet. Farmer Iwayan Wilantara worries his single cow might die, but he treats it himself.
6: The cow is important for me because it's a means of saving for my kids' education and also for us to eat. I have a young child and he's about to start school and that won't be
5: cheap. Foot and mouth disease is clearly still spreading in Bali, but authorities deny there's a single case. Bali's agriculture office says the cases at Gembrana are clearly a different disease altogether and not foot and mouth. But the ABC has seen and filmed more cattle with foaming mouths and foot lesions at Karangasem in Bali's east. And more than 60 cattle was slaughtered in Denpasar earlier this month, all confirmed to have had foot and mouth disease. Yet no cases have been reported to a national task force since August the 1st. I haven't received
4: any reports from our vets in the field, so there's no such thing. It's not that they are not reporting, it's just not foot and mouth.
5: That was an order from the national government in late August to have zero cases by the time of the G20 summit in November, when the world's focus will be on Bali. But several experts say it's not possible to eliminate the disease that quickly.
0: I believe it's the second most infectious disease known to science.
2: Would you call it a cover-up, what the government here is doing?
0: If it was in Australia, it would be a cover-up. In Indonesia, it's just uh, good government policy. So it's just a cultural thing. Things work different here than they do uh, in the west.
5: Still, foot-and-mouth cases in Bali are undoubtedly low, given its entire herd is under 600,000 and sparsely spread among mostly small family farms. Plus, there are strict rules on the movement of cattle in and out of Bali, and the island is also vaccinating cattle faster than almost any other province. If you look closely, all the cattle here have a red tie round their necks showing they've been vaccinated. And being in a tourist area, virtually all the animals around here have had at least one dose. Australia is supplying a million vaccines, most of which are being sent to Bali and already rolling out across the island. And Ross Ainsworth believes the threat to Australia is now vastly less than it was.
0: I initially was extremely concerned that this this disease was going to get to Australia. I thought it was perhaps a 50-50 chance when there was disease here, no vaccine and little change in biosecurity. But now both of those things have changed, I think the, uh, the threat is much lower.
5: Islands east of Bali are now seeing further spread, taking the disease closer to Australia geographically though Ross Ainsworth says it's feasible that Bali at least could eliminate the disease altogether.
0: It was eradicated many years ago uh, with vaccinations only, Um, so maybe it's possible.
2: Dr Ross Ainsworth in Bali, ending Anne Barker's report there. And while there are conflicting reports from Indonesian officials, one of Australia's top livestock biosecurity officials say there are encouraging signs coming from other parts of the region. Dr Chris Parker is the coordinator of National Animal Disease Preparedness and Hugo Rickard-Bell asked him what livestock producers are supposed to make of all this seemingly contradictory information. The
4: Indonesians are reporting that they've had no new cases in Bali. Um, our current understanding of the situation is, is that may well be the case, but there could well be undetected cases. I think producers should make of this um, that there is likely to be undetected cases in a whole range of provinces within Indonesia, Bali included. Um, Indonesia uh, is doing a really great job in uh, looking at how they roll out their vaccines. It's a uh, challenging environment to roll them out across a whole range of different provinces, but the work they're doing in Bali is really positive. And I think we've been contributing quite significantly to that,
7: Hugo. Should Australia be still on high alert with their biosecurity uh, based on um, some of these more recent findings or suggestions?
4: Well, Hugo, I think what we would say, okay, is is that we've still got an active infection in a range of provinces to our north and Indonesia. The risk settings at the border and the risk settings we're doing post-border shouldn't be changing at this stage. And I think that that's a very clear message that we've been putting across and so state government's been putting across. So I don't think the situation has changed significantly other than Indonesia starting to really roll out the number of vaccines that they're putting out there and making some really solid efforts in ensuring that they're trying to get this disease under control.
7: What farmers are getting access to these these vaccines over in Bali? Are we talking about just the commercial larger operations or are we also talking about the smaller independent people who might only have one or two so the focus very much
4: so from the indonesian government has been on smallholders. holders um, and in fact uh, we were as recently as uh, last week um, we were working with the ministry of agriculture in training uh, people uh, in uh, vaccination techniques and what they should be doing and in fact they trained 300 people just on the 15th and 16th um, of September. So, uh, you know, I think there's a really solid effort into control. Um, Is it fully under control yet? I think that uh, we would suggest there's still a little way to go, but uh, very encouraging signs, and I think they're doing a fantastic job at the moment. But has it changed our risk settings, Hugo? No, it hasn't at the moment, and uh, we've still got those extremely uh, strong measures at the border. Um, We're also continuing to invest in, uh, in Indonesia, and, in fact, Uh, In October, we'll be having another 3 million doses of vaccine going into Indonesia.
2: Dr Chris Parker is the coordinator of National Animal Disease Preparedness. He was speaking to Hugo Ricard-Bell there. Australia's livestock producers may be laser-focused on the FMD threat from Indonesia, but our grain farmers are thinking about another country altogether. You may have heard it in the news. It is Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, and Aussie grain farmers are being called upon to help Ukrainian farming communities as the war there intensifies. Grain Producers Australia launched the Grain for Ukraine appeal back in April, and with the harvest here now, growers are being asked to donate grain to raise money and help the industry there survive. Market analyst Andrew Whitelaw is a member of the Farmer Subcommittee that launched the appeal. He told Callie Buchanan, "It all began with grain farmers sticking Ukrainian flags on their farm machinery.
8: A lot of farmers were showing their, uh, I guess, their, their their concern about what's happening over in Ukraine. A lot of sh- people were showing uh, support for, uh, for 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 I guess their fellow farmers in Ukraine, and uh, and it was really about sort of starting to launch this." Uh, Grain for Ukraine appeal for this coming harvest.
1: Well, yes, as the the harvest nears, do you think that initial response will translate into donations?
8: Look, hopefully we've had a lot of people who have contacted and said once harvest starts, they'll donate a little bit of grain. And look, at the end of the day, uh, what, what we're looking for is for people to donate a small bit of grain. It doesn't have to be a big volume, but over the course of the country, it all all adds up and helps, and I think, you know, um, Australian farmers are pretty generous when it comes to helping appeals, and uh, and we've seen the horrific footage out of Ukraine, and and we know a lot of farmers from Australia have visited Ukraine, have contacts in Ukraine, and uh, we want to show a bit of a bit of support.
1: Well, yeah, how closely linked are the Australian markets and the Ukraine market?
8: Look, they're, they're very connected, and, and in reality, we are we are competitors when it comes to our our grain exports. But I don't think that's important, uh, to be honest. Uh, what we're looking at is is a, is a humanitarian issue, and looking to to assist you know people in Ukraine uh, with with the humanitarian effort that is that is ongoing there. And and at the end of the day, um, you know Australian farmers have had it bad in, in recent times with the droughts. Uh, but we've had nothing like what, what Ukrainian farmers and Ukrainian people are, are experiencing at the moment. And, uh, and look, it's, it's a way to just assist people and, and assist a nation in need.
1: That need, you know, it's, it's translated to a lot of volatility in the grain market, and Australian grain has been the cheapest in the world. How do you think that might affect the appeal? Do you think there'll be any impact on what might come in?
8: It may well be. Uh, it will be up to each individual to decide if they want to, to, to donate or, or not. Um, and uh, look, in, in part, whilst grain prices are uh, low in Australia because of our, our lower bases, the, the reality is that uh, they would be a lot lower if it wasn't due to this conflict in Ukraine.
1: So how do the donations work?
8: So it's it's very similar to what we'd have with with normal donations or even normal grain transfers. Um, So at Harvest, if you want to donate, you know, a couple of hundred kilos of of grain, uh, you just, when you're at the Weybridge or when you're transferring it on your, uh, whether it's GrainCore or CBH or whoever else, on their online platform, you just assign it to an NGR. And I think the NGR is 1500 4442. Uh, and then that just gets transferred against um, into a a, a fund, which the grain will then be sold, and then that money will be donated across a number of different charities.
1: What would be your message to grain producers who are watching the developments and that intensifying conflict in Ukraine and and feeling that sense of collegiality toward their, their Ukrainian counterparts?
8: Look, I think if you've got a little, a little bit of grain, you know, 200 kilos, 500 kilos, half a ton, and you, and you feel that like you can donate it and, and do a bit of good, then, then, then do that. It's, it's a nice way to, to assist people.
2: That was market analyst Andrew Whitelaw speaking to Callie Buchanan.
8: From the
0: paddock to the plate, Countrywide on ABC Radio.
2: You probably have an idea of how much you'd be willing to pay for a luxury sports car. What would you be willing to pay for a prized bull? Graziers are snapping up bulls as expensive as those sports cars, toppling price records across the country. Two bulls have been sold for over a quarter of a million dollars just in the past month. It is an impressive start to the bull selling season when graziers descend in numbers on properties hoping to snag the perfect bull. So why would you spend so much money on just one beast? Lucy Cooper's got the answer for you.
5: Andrew Bassingswate is the owner of Yarrawonga Cattle Company, a stud at Wollumbilla in Queensland's southwest. At the property's annual September bull sale, Mr Bassingswate broke the Santa Gertrudis bull breed record when one of his bulls sold for $250,000. He says a number of factors have contributed to such a cracking start to the spring bull selling season. Just the bottom line,
9: everyone had a year last year where they had to recover from the drought, selling cattle and trying to get back to, um, you know, pay off all the debts, the drought that they had keeping all their cattle alive. And this year, they're sort of just getting a bit of bit of money in. So they're at the moment, the market's kicked back up again. So you've got uh, 440 kilo steers making $2,300. So you translate around that over into a bull. Um, it used to be uh, half a deck per bull. So if you put those calculations into there, you should be sort of spending around twenty to $30,000. Um, on each bull for a commercial man on on those old stats. It's just the fact that they're getting paid so much money for their cattle and also they've had so much feed and grass coming through um, that the market and the future is looking great for the future. So they're um, very confident at the moment and, and it's for once it's nice to be a bull breeder.
5: Mr Bassingswate said the bull held model-like characteristics. Bull at
9: $250,000 you sort of had to go through the Structural things—the same sort of thing as you look at a person, if they can walk straight, if how much muscle they've got. So, in a bull, you want to have a right amount of muscle, um, but you also want to have the right amount of fat cover. So, it's all about having the perfect structure underneath the animal, with um, sheath, testicle development, and then semen. And then you've got to put the pretty things on top that everyone looks for. So, with this bull, he was just really good-looking. He was, you know, his skin was shiny. He he he, he, he just had a charisma about him so it was his absolute sex appeal to him that um that brought everyone in that made him make that money it was it really was the fact that he was he was just such an appealing bull with structural correctness and just you know that perfect you know if you if you look into a person or you know i suppose your models and stuff like that they're there to be the perfection of of what it is this fellow was just bottom line he was just pretty
2: Andrew Bassingthwaite there he's the owner of Yarrawonga Cattle Company in Queensland southwest He was ending that report from Lucy Cooper. Now you think those bulls were expensive? Let's talk extravagant sheep. An Australian white ram has sold for $240,000, absolutely smashing the previous record of $165,000. This ram is the most expensive sheep bought since 1989. It was sold to Elite Australia White Syndicate at the Tatekeel Annual Australian White Stud Sale in central New South Wales. Steve Pederick from the syndicate spoke to Hamish Cole and said it was an incredibly impressive animal.
10: Yeah, look, obviously he's an elite ram. Um, he's a ram that uh, has always been the, the, the standout of um, the three drops here at Tatekul in uh, 2021 out of their uh, embryo program and their breeding program. So he's been the standout sheep. He has got very modern young genetics and he's... Uh, what we believe will be, you know, a a, a ran that will be very good for the industry. Um, as a as a stud group, um, we we all believe that we are sort of the next level to Taddy Keel. And to, to stay at that uh, next level, um, we need to um, we need to buy the best possible genetics. He's an outstanding sheep. He's a sheep that uh, Taddy Keel. Had uh, planned to retain um, themselves, so Tadiki have kept some semen from this ram for their own use only, and we we will then now utilise that across our four studs with the uh, with the intention of keeping on using this you know this uh, sort of exciting young genetics to then bolster our studs and and uh, our clients. That's what we're sort of aiming at doing. And
4: what was it about this this stud that made you guys want to pay um, this amount for it?
10: So this ram that we've purchased is has just got except, exceptional muscle um, and depth. Um, for his he's very balanced ram, um, very deep ram right through his carcass. Certainly exceptional hind quarter and muscling, um, and and extremely good growth rates. Um, Uh, He's certainly been one of the fastest growing rams as a lamb. He was outstanding and he's continued to go on. Um, He has been uh, a champion ram at the shows. He's always sort of been at that level where he was an an outstanding sheep. So we think that that helps us uh, improve our own flock and... uh, Yeah, we're we're excited
2: about it. Steve Pederick from The Syndicate ending that report from Hamish Cole. Now, you might have suspected something like this already, but did you know that only 3% of truck drivers in Australia are women? Fiona Armstrong is one of them. She lives in Brisbane but also calls the road home. She drives B-double trucks along Australia's east coast and is a director with Women in Trucking Australia. The organisation is launching a new training initiative next year to support up to 70 licensed but inexperienced women to get their feet in the door. Fiona told Indiana Hanson she'd like to see more women in the industry.
7: I'm a 40-something-year-old mother of now adult children. I drive interstate B-double generally up and down the east coast of Australia, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane for the most part.
1: And how long have you been a truck driver for?
7: Um, I drew, my first position driving an actual truck was now eight years ago. So prior to that, I was driving uh, buses. Uh, for seven years, so you could say I've had a 15-year heavy vehicle career now.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about the challenges you were faced working in a male-dominated industry?
7: 3% of, of heavy vehicle drivers are women, and through Women in Trucking Australia, where we're hoping to push that up to a good solid 10%. Challenges for women at the moment, for the most part, are really just mostly attitude. Um, it is hard to get started in the, in the trucking industry. A lot of people in, in decades gone by uh, were brought into the industry, but through family, often their fathers drove and then the sons came on board, that type of rhetoric. That was essentially an apprenticeship or traineeship of sorts without the official title of doing so. With the modernisation of, of how companies run, a lot of that's been put by the wayside, side and now everyone's scrambling to understand how we can rectify that. This is why we've got the hopefully new apprenticeship program coming in and uh, women will be able to be a part of that, no different than the guys. Fortunately though, because that's yet to launch, the same old rhetoric that a lot of companies and managers is like I'm not sure that women are up to the job or you know when when given an opportunity we'll usually choose the guys first and uh, we have seen a larger uptake more recently of women coming into the industry but mostly because there's such a desperation to find any driver rather than necessarily of offering work based on merit.
1: Do you feel equal to your male counterparts in the job and do you cop a lot of disrespect from other male drivers and your peers?
7: I would never say that men and women are equal. We're, we are clearly different. And I think that's part of the, the problem is that we can't be deemed to be the same, but it's more a matter of equal opportunity rather than being literally equal. Some things need to be done slightly differently. And yes, uh, there are men who aren't really keen to see the ladies come on board. And every position I've ever accepted driving trucks uh, from from the beginning of my career, I've been warned that I will need to uh, endeavour to have a thick skin to get along with, as, as you might imagine. But in my experience, I've really not had any of that. Everyone's been really, very pleasant, generally speaking, in the companies that I've worked for. Probably there's a little bit of backlash on the, on the two-way when you're on the road, but i mean you sort of just have
2: to that, that was Women in Trucking Australia's Fiona Armstrong, you just heard, talking to Indiana Hansen about why there are so few women in trucking. It's been very wet in some parts of the country, so if you have a dam on your property, it might be worth checking that it's in working order. Parts of Echunga, a small town in South Australia, were under an emergency warning because of a dam failure that was threatening to send 10 megalitres That's about four Olympic-sized swimming pools flooding into local homes and shops. Local man Mark's home and business are both on Mariana Street in Echanga, which was under threat. He spoke with Paul Goff.
6: We're pretty much um, in the firing line, if it does go, us and um, the bottom half of the street. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting times ahead.
9: Mm. Now, t- talk, tell us about the, the, describe the dam for us, perhaps. It looks like it's on an, on an incline and then there's a run down into town. Is that correct?
6: That's correct. So it's, it's, as far as we know, it's a private dam located on a private property. Um, it's it's got small runoff that comes to a creek, which the creek actually comes right behind our neighbour's house um, mm. and, and then subsequently behind us. So apparently word on the street was the creek has been dry for 10 years and it's only just started flowing again. And then we were contacted uh, late last night um, by the CFS that there is an issue up there and it was actually overflowing last night from what we've heard. Um, they had excavators up there trying to, I guess do what they can to relieve pressure but uh, unfortunately this morning early hours this morning those um, efforts weren't weren't really um, doing much so we got knock on the door at 5:20 and got told to evacuate um, the dam is moving it's apparently bubbling which means the earth's moving under it from from what we've been told and um, the word this morning was it's pretty much going to happen we just they don't know how and 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 when. So we, we've got um, – everyone's out. Uh, we've got all the vehicles out. Uh, we've got a vehicle on the street uh, ready to go. So um, we have been told there'll be a siren uh, at that point if the siren is heard that the dam has collapsed or it is, it is about to happen. So um, if you are still in the area, to get away. But we have a vehicle out the front which has got everything in it. Um, so if, if it does happen, we're, we're straight up the top of the street, which, is, which should, should be fine.
9: And, and can you see what the SES are doing? Can you see them in place?
6: We can't at the moment. At night, you could see the lights, but we can't at the moment because it is through trees. Um, from from what I heard at 5.20 this morning when we had the knock on the door, they were actually asked to evacuate themselves. So we were told that um, all the trucks up there, Bar Swift Water, was the only ones left, and they were asked to remove the trucks.
2: Mm. Um,
6: we have heard that they're trying to get pumps in, but they can't get the pump truck in because it's too wet ground and they just keep getting bogged.
2: Ichanga man Mark there speaking to Paul Goff. And the threat from the failed dam has passed, the water has been suctioned out, and things are back to normal. And that's all we have time for on Countrywide today. If you want to dig deeper into what's going on every day in our regions, head to abc.net.au forward slash rural.